because we've got coffee and tea. It's really been a, a particular series. We've been talking about um, Genesis, and recently we've been looking at male and female. Um, and this week, um, we're looking at the whole idea of restoration, restoring relationships in Christ. So it's a slight departure from Genesis, but it actually is linked. How many of you have uh, seen the film or the theatre production of Les Miserables? How many of you have seen that? Yeah. Um, it's, I would recommend it. I'd recommend, I heard, I saw somebody put on uh, Facebook that they preferred the film to the theatre production. I mean, um, the film made more sense to me, probably because I don't understand theatre as well, but the, fil- the film made a lot more sense to me. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And uh, I remember reading about many people who had seen the film and that, that they were, it moved them to tears. It was quite emotional. It was quite, it was quite an amazing story. Um, and the thing about it is it's, it's really a story of grace. This is, this is how I think of Les, Les Miserables. There's, right at the beginning, there's a man who comes out of prison in, in France. I can't remember what, what the period that it's in. He comes out of prison. He ends up at a house where he steals some stuff and um, he, he sort of leaves the house with this stuff that he's stolen. He gets, he gets stopped by the police, arrested, brought back to the house um, and with, with, all, with all the gear. And the one thing he never wanted to do was to go back into prison. He's, he's brought back to the house and the owner of the house, uh, when the police bring him back because they're about to take him off, the owner of the house says to him, you forgot to take the other silver. You, you, for, you forgot some stuff. And he was like, he looked at him, the police were like, what on earth is going on here? And, and he gives him the other silver and he sends him on his way. And it's an amazing story because that event changes that man's life. It changes his life because what he's experienced in that moment is grace. He doesn't know it. And, and then really, what the rest of the film is, is almost like his attempts to almost repay what's happened to him. And, and the way he operates after that is completely different compared to how he had operated before. Now, the policeman who had arrested him and uh, who, who then believes, no, no, you're a thief. <laughs> the policeman thinks, you're a thief and you should have gone to prison. Then basically begins to, to sort of, I suppose hunt him down to get him. And, uh, you know, there are other bits of the story. I'm not telling you the whole story, but not because, just because I don't know enough of it. Um, although I've watched it, it's all complicated. There's lots of things going on. But what happens with this policeman, he's hunting him down, and uh, there comes a point where there's a revolution, a bit of a revolution, and, and uh, uh, th- this guy who was the, the prisoner ends up uh, with a gun, and he's he's facing the policeman. The policeman now is on the wrong side of the revolution. And, and he has the opportunity to kill him. And what he does, he, he just shoots the gun and he, gets, he allows the policeman to go away. So the policeman runs away. And uh, the policeman, who's, who's rather than being grace-filled, is totally law-abiding. He's dutiful. He does the right thing. And he can't believe what's just happened. So he ends up running away, going away. And later... He meets the man again, and although he's a law-abiding, dutiful policeman, when he meets the man again and has the opportunity to arrest him, he can't. 
He can't. Something's happened. He's, he's almost like unable to do it. And because of that inability now to respond to the grace that was shown to him, he kills himself. He kills himself. And it just reminded me of, and you know, people weep at this movie, and it just reminded me of the fact that sometimes grace can be so powerful that you can either, you can either respond to it and it shapes your life like it did uh, the, the thief who was, who was let off and it changes him and from that moment he just does good or he seeks to do good or, it can, or grace can actually cause you to go, I can't, I can't handle this. I can't handle this kindness. I can't handle this goodness like this uh, policeman. And I was, as I thought about that, I was thinking about God. I think about God quite a lot. And I was thinking about God. And I realised that when I watch Les Mis, there's a picture here of, of, of God. There's a picture of grace. There's a picture of redemption. There's a picture of forgiveness. And I realised that people don't realise that's what God's like. They don't, they don't realise God's like that. Because, you know, what? if if more people realised God was like that, they would follow him. They actually think God is more like the policeman. The law-abiding, dutiful, legalistic policeman. That's what they think God is like. They don't realise God is like this guy. Full of grace. Let's you off when you think, well, I didn't deserve that. And actually, it's the grace of God that causes you, in some ways, to be transformed because you can't believe what he's done for you. When you realise what God has done for you, it completely changes everything. And that was the case in that movie. And I I realised that some people reject God without truly knowing who who he is or what he's like. Some people reject him without truly knowing. The bizarre thing is this. Some people love God without really knowing who he is and what he's like. There are people who love God who still think of him as the policeman. They don't realise that he's grace-filled. They think of God as a distant, sort of almost being up there, looking down, but they must love him. They don't realise that he's a father who loves them and who draws close to them. And so I, I sometimes think that, gosh, people reject you though they don't even know who you, what you're really like. And other people respond to you, though they don't really know what you're like. And one of the things that I feel here, I remember when I, early on when I first came um, to Beacon and, and we were meeting in Tulse Hill, I remember walking down the hill, Tulse Hill Road, from Tulse Hill to Brixton, and I remember thinking, one of the things that people in this area need is grace. They need to know that God is not an ogre, but God is a father. And behind a lot of what I do is that, is that idea that, that do you understand what God is really like? He's a father. He loves you. And so we're looking at this idea of restoring relationships and restoring relationships to that kind of God, into that kind of situation. And so now I'm going to change tack ever so slightly. I looked at two weeks ago male and female, looked at the created order, how God had set things up. Remember, have in mind the fact that God is a father who loves you and he's a God of grace. Have that in mind as I speak. And I I looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Last week we looked at sin. And really the only comment I made in relation to male and female was the fact that um, uh, when sin entered the world, it distorted things. It changed the relationships. 
Because, because Adam and Eve, they usurped the created order in different ways by listening to the snake uh, with Eve, by listening to Eve with Adam. They usurped the order that God had put things in. And so this week we want to look at how do we restore that order? How do we restore relationships in Christ? Social issues around men and women and their roles, responsibilities and relationships, they're a, they're a major issue for the church today, major issue. There are similarities with the issue of diversity, um, um, not, not, not the group, but the, the reality of us being different, um, of which I'm really familiar. I'm really familiar with issues around diversity. Uh, there are also similarities in relation to issues of sexuality and, and homosexuality and things like that, of which I am less familiar. But let me just highlight some of those similarities. First of all, all of those issues, whether you're dealing with gender issues, sexuality issues, or diversity issues, all of those issues have history. They have history. And you know, you know when someone says that, you, know, you, you meet somebody and you realise, oh no, there's history between them. What it means, there's something going on. It's not, you're not just coming in naively, innocently. There's history, and that history has not always been positive or good. Secondly... There's not only in history, but in truth, there's hurt. And that hurt is not just historical when you look back in history. That hurt might be personal. So for me, just, just I mean, Pauline gets bored when I talk like this, but for me as a black male, I don't just know about racism from the past. I've experienced it. <coughs> if you're a woman, you don't just know about um, the oppression of women from the past. You've probably experienced it. So there's History. And there's hurt. It's personal. And thirdly, there's confusion. And the confusion comes to this. Where do these issues find their place in the church in the 21st century? We have to answer those questions, or at least try and grapple with those questions. All those issues have things in common, like I've said, but we mustn't think that they're all the same, because they're not. They are all different, and we approach them differently. And today, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, those issues in relation to women in the church. Just want to remind you that I'm fallen and fallible, <laughs> okay? And that, and that because I'm a pastor, I'm here doing this, not because I've got lots of big views or stuff. A number of principles that we want to apply when we're trying to build the church and restore relationships through Christ. And, and I'll be honest, I preach much more principle than practical, and there's a reason for that. There are reasons why I did that. I used to preach much more practical, and I've changed over the years. Even before I came to Beacon, I changed. And I changed for a number of reasons. I was thinking about it the other day. I changed because if I preach too practical, I disempower people. You might not feel disempowered, but I disempower you if I preach and I simply tell you what you should do. In the end, this is the application. You must do this. Also, the application I bring ends up being overrated. You feel like that's the thing to do. When really, you know, um, and so I can disempower you if I, if I preach too practical. You don't need a degree to be a Christian, yeah? But you do, you do need to think a bit. You, you do need to think for yourself a bit if you're going to be a Christian. You don't, you don't need a degree to be a Christian, but you do need to think a bit to be a Christian. You can't just go, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. 
Yeah? Many of you are very bright. You're a lot brighter than me. You've got degrees and you've got letters after your name and all that type of stuff. You didn't get that by sitting in a lecture, saying to the lecturer, just, just tell me what to write and I'll write it. Of course you didn't. You know, even for me, even, even to get maths, a C in maths GCSE, which was like, man, that was big for me. Um, just getting that, even then I couldn't just sit there and say, just tell me what to write and I'll write it. Yeah, I needed to think, I needed to grapple. Yeah, I needed to work at it. Yeah, like you do with lots of things, you need to work at them. So you can disempower people if you simply just tell them what to do. Secondly, when you speak practically over being principled, you become cultural in a multicultural world. Why? Because I've got a particular culture, I've got a particular viewpoint, I've got a particular way of seeing things. If we were all the same, if every one of you was just like me, but maybe you were just a bit younger, and a bit, you know, you're just on your way, and you, you, but you were just like me. I could speak quite practically because you would know exactly what I'm talking about. But, but you're not just like me. In fact, there's no one just like me. I don't say that to sort of... <laughs> oh, there's no one like... But none of you are just like me. Therefore, um, I, must, I must teach you principles, yeah, because the world is changing. Again, if I teach you practice, um, we could end up looking foolish. And um, I, I listened to a few sermons by George Verwa, who started Operation Mobilisation. I remember him preaching a sermon back in the 50s about, and he was preaching about the evils of the television. Yeah, the evils of the television. And he gave an example in that sermon of a man who had heard him preach about the evils of the television, had gone home, got his new television, and had thrown it out because television was evil. Yeah? That's, that's like practical preaching, applying it. And I'm like, do you know what? I don't know if the TV's evil. <laughs> it can be used like that, but I don't know that the TV's evil. And so you have to be careful when you preach practically. The other thing you must be careful of when you preach practically is some of it is just about your personality, who you are. Yeah? So I can, I can preach you principles on marriage. If I then talk to you about our marriage, you'd go, I just don't know that that would work for us. Yeah, because if you came and sat in our home for a little while, you'd say, "I mean, I, I just, I just don't know how you, how it works here. You don't seem to be in charge. <laughs> yeah, you're dominated by everyone else. Yeah, I, I just don't think, I just don't think. Yeah, I think if just you looked at it, if you just looked at it, I'm not saying that as, like, but if you just looked at it, if you just came in. Because if you just observed how, how it works in our family, you'd find that Daisy has more influence in what's going on than I do sometimes. So, so I, I, I try and preach principally for those reasons, more so because we live in a world that's changing. So as you raise your children, you're raising your children in a world that's different to the world you were raised in. So if you can't teach them principles, you're in trouble. If you can only teach them what you did, then, then some, you know, because when you grew up, you didn't have social media. So what do you do? You teach your children not to use social media? That just won't work. So you've got to be able to teach principle. Okay, I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to do some principles. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you're here. We thank you for these moments uh, to honour the women of this church. We are grateful and thankful for them. And Father, we pray your blessing upon each of them. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've just got a few principles that I'm going to try and 
unpack. I, I, it's not going to be full and wholesome all the time, or by holistic I mean, not wholesome. Um, <laughs> um, hopefully be wholesome. Okay, so the first principle is this, for building a church that restores relationships through Christ, the first principle is this, have a biblical worldview. Have a biblical worldview. It says in Timothy these words, as for you, they're well known if you're a Christian, you'll know these words, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you must be able to build your life according to a, a, a Bible view of the world. So you take scriptures like that as being important. You don't take them as just being, oh, I'll just add that on. That becomes how you look at it. I heard the other day somebody say, if you build your church on the word of God, you will become countercultural today. You will become countercultural today. You will become increasingly out of step with the culture. Now, if that's the case, we just need to pause and go, are we okay with that? Because it means you're going to hear things that are being preached. You're thinking, that's not the way the world is. Are you okay with being countercultural? Are you okay with trying to follow a, a, a sort of a Bible line? Or are you thinking, well, yeah, that's important, but you know, this is the way the world's going. Now, obviously, you, we need to balance that in different ways. As I said, I talked about the TV, talked about social media. There are some things where, where you're just, you allow, the culture is what it is, and you, you embrace that, but there are other things that you want to hold a line to. What that means, because it's changing all the time, our experience, is potentially, for the Christian, it's going to get a bit bumpy. Yeah, you're flying in a plane and you know oh, there's going to be a bit of turbulence now. So can you put your seatbelts on? Yeah, and so you do that. And, and then and I don't know how planes get bumped in the air, but they do. They bump around in the air like this. And for the Christian, these days, it's going to get a bit bumpy if you're trying to live by the Bible. You need to understand that. You either go, oh, I, yeah, no, I'm not happy with that. Or you go, okay, it's going to get a bit bumpy. You need to understand, or certainly I need to understand, something about what I've described as trajectory, tensions, and absolutes. So when it comes to certain things, there are trajectories, there are tensions, and there are absolutes. So when I talk about a trajectory, I'm talking about there are some things in the Bible which, which don't just point to the future, they explicitly talk about the future. And I can say that because because that has been my experience as I've studied around the area of diversity. The area of diversity isn't just an area where we go, oh my goodness, the world's getting a diverse place, what should we do? Let's go to the Bible and see what it says. If you read the Bible, you will find that much of what we do, um, the Bible talks about diversity in a very, very inclusive sort of way. It actually describes in Ephesians 2 that there will be a time that, and one, one of the things that Jesus did was by dying on the cross, he made it possible for people to have relationships with other people who were not like them. It's actually there in the scripture. So I don't, I don't need to sort of assume it, it's there. It tells me that that's what happened. Ephesians 2, that, that Jews and Gentiles will be brought together because of the cross and peace will be made. 
It tells me that. It talks about it in Genesis. It talks about it a bit in the Old Testament. Picks it up in the New Testament. And then you see it in heaven. It's all there. The trajectory, you can see it. It's there. In Galatians 2, it tells about people having been hospitable to one another from different backgrounds. There's a trajectory in relation to the issue of diversity. When it comes to, say, um, some other issues where there are, the, the Bible's more absolute. So if I just take the issue of sexuality, the, the Bible doesn't change its stance on sexuality from Genesis through to, through to uh, Revelation. Where it talks about sexuality, where it talks about marriage between male and female, it doesn't change that. There's no indication that it, that it says, oh, and then there's this process where you can open it. It doesn't change the stance. What we read in the Old Testament, Jesus affirms in the New Testament. When it comes to the issue around women and their role in the church, there's a tension. There's a tension. So you talk about a trajectory with some things. There's absolutes with some things, and then there's a tension with other things. And the tension occurs on a number of levels. First of all, there is a real tension. Yeah? There's a real underlying tension in churches, partly because churches haven't really addressed the issue. Yeah? And so what happens when you don't address issues is, is people address them in other ways. People find things. And also, people become resentful. This is not just an issue in relation to women. This would be an issue in relation to um, race and diversity, that people find other ways. But there are tensions. And it's not always a healthy tension. In the Old Testament, we read about, as I talked about, we read about what the Bible says about the relationship between male and female, what the relationship of marriage is. We read about the primary responsibility that God gives to Adam. We read in Genesis 3 that God says to Adam after they had sinned, he, he summoned Adam. He doesn't say Adam and Eve come. He says, Adam, where are you? He addresses Adam directly, firstly. And then when you read through the New Testament, Jesus, when he talks about marriage and divorce, affirms that. He talks about, he talks about uh, marriage being between male and female. And then you read in Ephesians 5, it affirms the same thing. The Apostle Paul affirms it. There's no point where that idea of headship and submission, primary responsibility, there's no point in the Bible where that is either removed or reversed. Now, it doesn't mean that in the New Testament there aren't, there aren't pictures of, of women having more freedom than there were in the Old, but there is no point where it is removed or reversed. And then, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, uh, it's actually related to the Trinity, where it talks about the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God. That's what it says for us. Though Jesus chose 12 men, when it came to women, he crosses divides that many people don't cross. And in fact, when it came to women, Jesus did things back in the first century which are more radical than what we do today. You find with Jesus, he spent more time alone with women, teaching, training, witnessing, pastoring them in a way that many pastors won't do today. It wasn't just radical in his day, it's radical in ours. So there's this tension. The tension exists because the Bible seems to say things that at one level you can call contradictory. Uh, I'll just call them attention. You, maybe for you they're a contradiction, but for me there's attention. 
1 Timothy, it seems to tell us, um, uh, women shouldn't teach or have authority. In 1 Corinthians 11, it tells us um, that when women prophesy and pray, they should do it with their heads, un- heads covered. So on the one hand, it's saying they shouldn't do something. On the other hand, it says they should, they can do something. 1 Corinthians 14, it tells us women should be silent. 1 Corinthians 11, again, it tells us that women should, when they speak, they should do certain things. So you've got this tension. It's a tension. These tensions have led, sadly, to division in the church. They've led to hurt in the church. They've led to people walking away from the church. In the same way, I know many young black folk have left the church because they think of the church as being Western religion. They see it as being an oppressive thing, so they walk away from it. Here, we're committed to restoring relationships. We're committed to restoring roles. We're committed to restoring responsibilities for men and women in the church, for people who are black or people who are white, for people who are rich or for people who are poor. We're committed to it. But we're also committed to being faithful as far as we can to the scripture. We're committed to that approach. Now, we can't overplay the role of sin and suffering in these issues because it's there, the way people respond. But we're committed to those things. And that may mean that we change some things. It may mean that we do some things slightly differently. The important second principle, the importance of restoration in the church not just of the church, but in the church. Not just of the church, but in the church. Galatians 3.28 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It's a well-known passage. It's used in many different ways, but really it talks about our status in Christ. It talks about the fact that there's nothing that separates us. There's nothing that distinguishes people, whether they're men or women, in Christ. Clearly, there were Jews and Greeks. So though it talks about that there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, there were Jews and Greeks. It talks about our individual identities. It talks about affirming our unity in Christ. Next passage, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are new creations. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So we move on from being worldly. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're to become a place where we don't regard people as though the world would regard them, but we regard them as Christ would regard them. That we're to become a church that looks at this new identity. I know for me personally, I can only talk about me personally, when I was struggling with issues of identity, living in, living in this country, I suppose living in a world that was predominantly not like me, I was struggling with identity. I discovered for myself, I realised, do you know what I'm going to be? I'm, 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 I'm not black, I'm not this, I'm going to be Christian. I remember, I remember saying that. I genuinely remember saying that. I must have been about 19, 20 years old. And I thought, where do I fit? Do you know where I fit? I fit, I fit with Jesus. That's where I fit. 
that will become primary. The primary identity I have is one of a Christian. It's not the secondary identity, it's the primary identity. And then when we think about restoring our relationships in relation to Christ, we we think about what Jesus has done for us. We often talk about Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners. There is something about the restoration of the heart. Something about the restoration of people inside. And that's one of the things that we feel as a church that we're called to. To restoring, restoration. A place where people who have been broken, people who have felt captive, people who have lived in darkness or felt that they've been in prison, that God can restore to them a new identity. God can give them a new creation. God can make people who once felt useless, useful. That's what it tells us in Philemon, the story of Onesimus. He was once considered useless, but he's now become useful. And many of us can testify to God doing something in us, changing us over these months and years. Third principle, the importance of right relationships. The importance of right relationships. It says in 1 Timothy 5, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father, Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It says in Titus 2, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good, Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. The importance of right relationships. Again, in a world where we get a bit confused about men and women, sexuality and gender, we lose distinctiveness in right relationships. We lose the fact that there are fathers and mothers. We lose the fact that there are brothers and sisters. We lose some of the boundaries, the natural boundaries that exist in relationship. And we need to restore them. We need to restore those relationships. We need to restore those natural boundaries. I remember, I've said this before, when I was, I think I was a teenager when I first read that passage in 1 Timothy, when it said, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity, I was, I was shocked. I was shocked that the Bible had given such an instruction and how was I supposed to do that? But actually there is something about, as a church, learning to have right relationships, to treat older people with the respect that they deserve. That's what the Bible tells us to treat younger, younger people with, with honour and dignity. But you don't treat everyone the same. Yeah? I don't expect people, that Simon and Kim aren't here this week, but I don't necessarily ex- I expect people to treat, um, say, Rihanna and Kim with dignity, but you're not going to treat them the same because they're different. 
One's an elder person in the church, and so you treat with a level of respect and honour. I'm not saying you don't want to honour Rihanna, but you don't treat her the same as you might Kim, because she's 16, and so she's going to respond differently. And so we, we treat people according to who they are. So right relationships is important. And fourthly, the important principle, the importance of the heart. It says in Psalm 51, story of David after he had committed adultery, he, he prays this prayer, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I know from experience the reality of history and hurt. I know from experience when um, young black men that I grew up with discovered the history of slavery. I know, I know what that did to them. I know, the, I know the anger that that brought into their hearts. I know the way they responded. And although on the outside everything was fine, I know what it did. I know what I had to go through in order to be able to uh, honestly deal with some issues that I had when I understood something of history and something of my own experience. But I did realise this. History and hurt, they're not, they're not excuses for harbouring resentment. They might be the reason that you harbour resentment. They might be the reason that you struggle and feel um, and, and maybe feel got at, but they're not, they're not an excuse for harbouring resentment. I've seen so many Christians from minority backgrounds leave church or sit on the back steps of church because of history and because of hurt. And I know for me that I've had to learn to live with the tension the tension of the reality of the world in which I live and the tension of the type of church that God wants us to build. And we're a church on a journey. We're not a church that, that have... Uh, um, well, we're certainly not a church that have got it all sorted. We're a church on a journey. But we are committed on this journey to building the right relationships, to, to working through issues of, of tension where we, where we need to do that. But we're also committed to restoring the heart. Because in the end, it's, it's the heart that determines what you ultimately will do. And sometimes we can, we can work through issues on a practical level, but really we haven't touched the heart. I remember going to a, a meeting a few, a few months back now where there was, there was arguments about whether or not Tesco should build, um, take over a pub up the road, up Brixton Hill, just a bit further up the, up the road. And I remember hearing all the discussions about it. And I realised that for some of those people, frankly, they couldn't give a monkey's whether there was a Tesco's up the road. But actually, there was, there was an opportunity to, to voice some opinion and to, and, and to let out some frustration. And that's what they were doing. It wasn't about Tesco's. And so sometimes we need to be aware on these issues. I know this for myself. That sometimes you can, you can hide behind a big issue with your stuff. 
And we just need to work on that. You'd, I needed to work on that. I remember a couple of really simple examples. I remember realizing there came a point where I couldn't make the, the issues that I was facing personal all the time. I couldn't always talk about me because it wasn't just about me, but it was easy to do that. I had to move on from the fact that there were some issues that people could never see. I remember sitting in my eldership meetings before and there were issues that people couldn't see and I thought, okay, do I, do I engage here or do I now withdraw? Because this issue is so important to me that unless the church gets this right, I'm, I'm not having anything of it. Do you know what? I had, to, I had to grow up a bit inside. I had to grow up a bit. I had to deal with some stuff for myself. There, and sometimes other people's wrong exposes my wrong. And that's what, that's what was going on for me. And I had to go through some personal challenges. And I'm asking for us as a church, yeah, we might have to go through some personal challenges. But for us to be open to God, to recognise it's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's not about the externals. It's about the heart. And that's what God looks at. And that's what we're seeking to build into. I'm aware that there's just lots and lots I haven't said. So I'm, you know, very happy to, to talk to people, to have conversations. I'm very happy I'll be down here afterwards if people have, have questions specifically. Um, very happy to walk through those things. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to this, we're trying to build, restore relationships. We're doing it by having a biblical worldview. We're doing it by restoring, restoration is an important part of what we're trying to do. Right relationships and the heart. Let's pray. Father, I'm acutely aware this morning of not, not covering this uh, particularly broadly or well. But Father, I'm also aware that you are your sovereign over all things. And you're sovereign over this church. You're sovereign over every individual here. And uh, it's my prayer, Father, that you will help us as a community, as a body, to, to move on together, to build a church, to establish a community here that reaches a community out there, that teaches, shows people grace where they don't know it, uh, that sees people calm and restored where they need it. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to finish there.